Are you struggling to find a way to maximize your income and achieve financial freedom? In today's episode, Clint Harris and I are talking about house hacking, a unique solution to help you skyrocket your journey to financial independence. We'll dive deep into the world of house hacking, revealing powerful tips and strategies to help you achieve your financial goals. Stay tuned to learn how to overcome the challenges and risks, find the perfect property, and unlock the life-changing benefits of house hacking. Don't miss this opportunity to transform your financial future. Let's get started. Welcome to the Truly Passive Income Podcast. I'm Neil. And I'm Clint. On today's episode of the Truly Passive Income Podcast, we're going to talk about the benefits and challenges of house hacking. Before we do, I want to give you a definition, but right before that, I want to let you know that house hacking, although it's something that's very near and dear to my heart, is not a passive strategy. It's very much an active strategy. And that may not be what the focus of our podcast is, but it's something that if you learn early on, can get you to a point where you really reduce your housing expense that creates income that can turn into passive investment funds for you. So that's the focus of today's episode, and it's a big stepping stone that Neil and I both took in our own personal investing lives. The definition of house hacking and its origins. House hacking is a way to leverage the power of real estate to eliminate or substantially diminish your personal housing expense. That can be done in multiple ways. The most common are renting out rooms to roommates that cover the mortgage, living in one unit of a duplex or triplex and renting the extra units, either as a short-term rental or long-term rental or purchasing a house with an accessory dwelling unit, using the rents from one to allow the owner to live for free in the other. And that covers the expenses of the property. Often a young investor's first house, the first house hack may be a duplex, and that can continue to scale forward, with the duplex eventually turning from a house hack where one unit is used as a rental and the owner lives in the other, that can turn into two rental units as the housing needs increase for the investor. And in short, you live for free because someone else pays for your living expenses as you move forward. It's a great definition, Clint. And I thank you for bringing up the point that this is not a passive strategy. It is an active strategy, but to me, it's the ground level investing strategy for someone getting started in real estate. I have so many friends and relatives that I try to encourage to house hack. I try to show them the benefit it's had for me. And it's not everyone is willing to do it. And I think more people should. And I think that what you should take away from that is that um, in order to live a life like no one else, you need to live a life like no one else. And I think house hacking is one of the keys to doing that. All right, I'm going to do a quick high-level overview of how house hacking works. And I'll use myself as an example, but first the traditional method that people think of when they think of house hacking, if they have any experience with it, is where somebody buys a multi-unit, a small multifamily, like a, a duplex, triplex, or fourplex. They live in one side and then they rent out the other units. That's more of the traditional method. We bought a house in Las Vegas, you've heard us talk about this, that had an auxiliary dwelling unit on the property, call it a granny flat, call it a guest house, whatever. We had two options when we did that. We could either rent that out long-term to someone, or we could rent it out as a short-term rental. We chose to rent it out as a short-term rental because it didn't have a large full kitchen. It didn't have laundry facilities. It just worked better as a short-term rental. There are people who convert rooms into auxiliary dwelling units. That's what we did with our beach house in Carolina Beach. We bought a five-bedroom, four-bath house that had a bottle with a separate entrance. 
we did some renovations. We converted that into an auxiliary dwelling unit that can be locked off, and we rented it as a short-term rental. Um, some of the factors that you consider you should consider when you're deciding a house hack include your own skills, your own sort of lifestyle. Obviously, somebody who has a family is probably not going to want roommates, whereas somebody who's maybe a college student or just starting off, they're cool with be living in a five-bedroom house that's got multiple roommates that are each paying rent to them. Um, or you also need to consider local laws and regulations. It's something that we ran into in Las Vegas, where when we started doing our short-term rental house hack, uh, it was legal because nobody, like short-term rentals weren't that big of a deal. But as time went on, the local laws changed, the HOA changed, and we eventually did get shut down. Clint, why don't you talk to us about a little bit more detail about some of the benefits of house hacking? So in talking about the benefits of house hacking, I think that it actually goes deeper than a lot of people would think. Obviously, the obvious is it's reducing or eliminating your housing expense. The average American spends 30% of their income on their housing expense for their family. And so obviously getting rid of that is a huge jump forward. If you can give yourself a 30% raise by not having a mortgage or rent, that's huge. But there's actually a lot more to it than that coming from my perspective after having done it. I did my first house hack. As a young man, when I bought a duplex, I lived in one half and had a long-term tenant in the other half and, and lived there for free. And I will tell you this, if you ever live without a mortgage payment, especially as a young man, it's hard to ever go back to having. Changes your mindset. And then I also did a house hack recently, just a couple years ago, when my wife and I moved to Wilmington, we bought a duplex two blocks off the water at the beach. And we lived in a three-bed, two-bath on one half. And the other half was another three-bed, two-bath that we turned into an Airbnb property. And that was not only covering our mortgage taxes and insurance, it was paying us 1400 bucks a month to live at the beach. And again, it was a total game changer and changed the way that we think. I would argue that the benefits of house hacking are a lot more dynamic and deeper than just eliminating your housing costs. There was a study done, it's been done for several decades now, talking about what are some of the traits that the most successful business people, specifically business entrepreneurs, as all the cream rises to the top of the people that are very good at what they do, what are some of the most common traits that they have? And for a long time, the most common trait among highly successful people was emotional intelligence, the ability to identify other people's motivating factors and their drives, their needs, and look for opportunities to create win-win situations. And having emotional intelligence to navigate people and places and circumstances is something that was really beneficial and created a lot of success. There was some studies that showed recently, that actually the same study, that over the last 10 to 15 years, that started to have a significant shift. And the people that are having the highest levels of success, yes, emotional intelligence is an important part of that, but the highest factor of the people that were having the most success is adaptability. And I would argue that it's because we live in a very rapidly changing world. One of the things that I think is a fringe benefit of house hacking is that it causes you to put other tools in your tool belt as a property owner, as a property manager, as a handyman need be, or anything along those factors. It's creating a level of adaptability and it's reframing your mindset and it's giving you financial incentive to increase your skill set. And that's going to continue to have benefits that play out across the rest of your career. So to get to some of the actual benefits, yes, reducing or eliminating your housing costs, getting rid of 30% of your fixed income 
you're giving yourself a 30% raise right off the bat. On top of that, you're gaining flexibility, the opportunity to potentially travel more or be location independent. The new rich typically are people with mobile jobs, especially since COVID in the last couple of years. People having the ability to move. And if you've got your mortgage covered, whether you're there or not, you potentially even can move out and rent the other unit as well. It creates flexibility there as well. It's also giving you an introduction into property management. Whether you like it or not, your house hacking is training wheels for people that are aspiring to be active investors, active landlords, and active property. It's also going to force you to take a look at long-term rentals versus short-term rentals and get exposure there and learn, okay, what's the highest and best use of the space that I have and the dollars that I have to invest? Eventually, for many people, that's your first introduction into growing wealth through passive investing. They take the money that you're not spending. If you're house hacking and you don't have a mortgage payment, if you just take that money and you turn around and spend it, you're missing the point. That can help, but you're hitting the ceiling there. The idea is take that and invest it into something else that you don't have to trade your time for. And for many people, that's their first foray into passive investing. The other is that you're building equity in your property that somebody else is paying. So it's continuing to build equity that someone else is paying down. And those are just a few of the benefits. And I'm sure that there's more along with that. It helps you mitigate risk in case you lose your job or something like that. Something else is subsidizing your monthly income. But you still need to be aware of the risk of zoning restrictions, regulations, and, and things like that that come along with that lender restrictions and your ability to rent out other units, homeowners associations, making sure your insurance covers rentals and, and things like that. And also um, making sure that you're prepared for the capet, the capital expenditures that come along with wear and tear on a rental property, 5 to 10% being set aside for capital expenditures or AC unit or a roof or vacancy, 5% set aside every year just because people are moving in and out. Those are just a few of the benefits and risks that come along with it. You have anything okay. to add there? Yeah. I want to add, said some great things and I want to interject a couple of personal experiences. One, the whole idea of reducing or eliminating your housing costs. And like Clint said, once you do it, it is really hard uh, it's addictive. It's hard to go back to funneling out $2,000 a month or $3,000 a month for rent or mortgage without having someone else cover that. We experienced that in Vegas. It helped my wife. She was able to be a stay-at-home mom early in her son's life because we had that extra income coming in. When she went back to work, we were able to funnel a large amount of money into paying down our mortgage. Now, Knowing what I know now, I probably wouldn't have done that given how low our mortgage rate was. I would have probably put that aside and used it to invest in other passive assets. But that is, that's one thing that you can consider doing. But that, those actions allowed us to build a huge nest egg to then roll into a, another house hack in North Carolina where we're literally across the street from the beach. You're making a really good point there. You just said it. You just said your house hack in Vegas. That, and yeah, you may say that I wish we had a lower rate, wish I hadn't put as much money into paying that house down, but the market continued to appreciate. And when you sold that property, you still had all that equity come back out and that helped you roll right into the next house hack where you are here. And you're getting paid to live across the street from the beach with a beautiful ocean view on all three levels. I might add. One of the things is that I think you make a great point in that house hacking it doesn't have to be mutually exclusive for your next goal or the next house that you're going after. 
For instance, the first house hack that my wife and I had here at the beach, we were getting paid to live in that property. And frankly, it was one of the reasons why I didn't want to leave for the long time. My wife came home and said, hey, honey, here, sign this paper. We're building a brand new house. And if you want to come, you're more than welcome, but that's where me and your son will be. And I love being married. So we did that and we moved into our new house a couple months ago. But what happened was we still own that duplex and the downstairs from that duplex pays the mortgage, taxes, insurance, and about 1400 bucks a month on top. The top, which we just finished renovating, pays for the new house. So it's a continued house hack. It continues to pay for it. And we built a house that's bigger and nicer than anything I would ever think that we would be able to afford. And the reality is we're still getting paid to live here. We don't have a mortgage payment because that house hack continues to move forward. So a lot of times, if you're thinking about getting into house hacking, and that's the next thing we're going to talk about is how to get started. Keep in mind, it's not always about that property. It can be about the property after that or the property after that and eventually setting yourself up for they can start generating income for you and also freeing your personal income that you can turn around and take to invest into truly passive strategies that you don't have to be active in that are going to get you to the point of not trading time for money. Neil, why don't you tell us about some of the ways to get started and some of the ways that you got started with yours? Sure. So some of the top house hacking ideas that uh, you may or may not be aware of. Obviously, we talked about the most common, which is people buying a small multifamily, like a duplex, triplex, or fourplex, and living in it. Now, one of the amazing things about buying a small multifamily is that you can use a residential mortgage. It's not a commercial property, so you're using residential mortgage, which means you can often, we'll get into some of the benefits there, um, but that's one of the key things about it. You can rent out a spare room. As we've talked about this, it's not for everyone. I've got a good friend of mine in Las Vegas named Spencer Cornelia, who has made a killing buying large homes. Uh, we're talking four, five, six bedroom homes in Las Vegas, Nevada, and renting them out by the room, sometimes furnished, sometimes not, partially furnished, whatever. Now, you got to be careful there with some of the legal zoning laws around occupancy and non-family members. But if you're willing to tread that line, like Spencer is, he's being paid to live in his house and he's building equity. It's especially great for people who live near colleges. You can rent out rooms to students. A lot of people think, oh my God, I wouldn't want to rent out to a student. They're going to destroy my property. Typically, that's why you deal with mom and dad and you get a deposit from mom and dad. And if they trash the place, then you get to keep their deposit. If you got an extra structure on your property, our friend that we work with, Drake, Drake Massa, just bought a house. He's got, currently he's got a garage in the back. It's like a carriage house that's got a top level. Our partner, Eric Hemingway, converted his old carriage house, kept the garage, but he added a second floor to it that has a dwelling on it. He can either use it as a short-term rental or he can just host family and friends. He could do it a long-term rental. You could do a live-in flip. That's another version of house hacking. Our friend Mindy Jensen and Carl Jensen, they have made so much of their wealth from uh, live-in flips and things like that. You can rent your place out as a vacation home. If you have a mobile job that allows you to go someplace and you live in a place that's got highly seasonal vacation traffic and you are willing to depersonalize your house, and go somewhere else for a period of time that's got a lower cost of living and rent out that place, you could potentially pay your entire mortgage for the year in a three-month 
period. And then it's also, we won't get into this much detail because I don't have a whole lot of experience doing participating in home sharing platforms. There are people who travel the world just home sharing, jump around, go someplace for a period of time. You want to go and live in Europe for three months? Go do it. There are home sharing platforms that can do that. Clint, why don't you talk about some of the risks and challenges that you might face with house hacking? Yeah. So the number one thing, let's say you've got the space, right? You find a way either through, let's say, an FHA loan or a VA loan. My first duplex, I was 24, 25 years old, I believe. I bought with a 203K FHA loan where I put three and a half percent down and it gave me money to do some renovations. So I fixed the property up with very little money down. Uh, let's say whatever it takes to get into your first property that's got an accessory dwelling unit, a finished basement, a duplex, whatever it may be. Let's say you're there. So the question is, what's the highest and best use of the space that you have? How do you run the numbers to determine what's the best way to use it? And a lot of times the best way to use it is going to determine, it's going to be based upon what market you're in and where you are. The two ways that, that I would recommend doing that is number one, look at the space that you have. Does it have a kitchen? Is it space, long-term livable space, things like that? If so, then you should go to rentometer.com. That's a great place where you can put in the address, put in the number of bedrooms and bathrooms. And what it's going to do is it's going to look at around a three to five mile radius around your property as to what other properties are renting for. You put in two bedroom, one bath, three bedroom, two bath, whatever it may be. And it's going to spit out a median projection of, let's say, $1,250 a month in rent. And you can see what the 25th percentile is, the 75th percentile is. And you can say, okay, my property has granite countertops or laminate countertops or carpet or LBP or whatever. That's going to give you a really good idea of what you should rent that property for as a long-term rental, 12-month lease. And then potentially you can look at maybe do a six-month lease and increase the monthly rent because people are willing to pay more to get a shorter lease. So that's something you can do. And you take that number and then you look at your mortgage and see where's the break even. Is that going to cover it? If it's not, how much, how close is it going to be? The other thing you should look at is maybe there's another use of the property that's a higher and better use. And that would probably be as an Airbnb. And don't be confused. This is not just next to Disney World or next to the beach or Nashville or Vegas. Short-term rentals work everywhere especially some of the things that have really jumped off the map is around military bases that have a graduation of graduating class of soldiers every weekend. Any unit within five to 10 miles of there is going to be rented out every weekend of the year that they have a graduation, which most of them is 52 weekends a year. There are properties that used to rent out long-term for $1,000 a month, and now you can get $800 per weekend. It's a 3X over what people were traditionally getting. Obviously, if you're near event venues and things like that, but also if it's anywhere where people are traveling for work or film or anything else, don't be surprised if it works in a place that you may not think it originally would. The best way to check the numbers on that is go to a website called airdna.co, not .com, but airdna.co. On the left side of the screen, there's a button that says invest. We'll click on that. There's a tab called the rentalizer tab. Can click on the rentalizer. You can put in the address of your property, put in the number of bedrooms and bathrooms. That is going to give you a projection of what that property would have done as a short-term rental over the previous 365 days. That's a data scraping website that scrapes the data from Airbnb, VRBO, HomeAway, and Booking.com for the previous 365 days to give you a projection 
of what your property would do. Now, once you get that number, that's a gross rental analysis. Be aware that the cleaning fees and the linen costs are lumped in there as well. So you need to back that out. On most properties, it depends on if you're doing the cleaning, if you're doing the linens, but let's say that you're not, you're paying somebody else. It's usually going to cost you between 15 to 22, 23%, depending on the size of the property and the size of the bed formation for your linens. That's usually what you're going to spend on cleanings. But you might find out that as a long-term rental, your property is worth $1,200 a month. But as an Airbnb, it might be worth $2,500 a month. It's pretty often that we find that in our market. So it just depends on what you are. So that's the next thing is learning how to run the numbers. Look at what's the property worth as a long-term rental, what's it worth as a short-term rental, and then knowing to factor in the money for expenses. So now that I've given you some of the basic versions of the different types of house hacking, let's talk about some of the risks and challenges. It's not all sunshine and rainbows. So the first thing is that you are managing tenants and you are a landlord. You are a property manager, and you're going to have to be dealing with that. And if you hate people, maybe not for you, or you're going to be handing off some of that work to somebody as quickly as possible. We had to be short-term rental managers with a guest house that was right outside our property. The biggest issue that we had to do, deal with was the laundry. We did the laundry ourselves, and every day we'd have to, anytime there was a turnover, we'd have to bring in the laundry and do, you got to realize that that is now your job. So you got to have, keep in mind to pick a desirable area. You can't just go, oh, small multifamily duplex. I'm going to buy that. I'm going to live in one side and I'm going to rent it out to other people. If you're buying duplex in a place that requires you to gun to collect rent, you're not going to enjoy life very much. Um, you need to really keep that, keep that in mind. You're picking an area that's desirable for tenants, whether they be long-term or short-term. You need to make sure that you're in compliance with local law. As I said, when we started our short-term rental house act in Las Vegas, it was legal because nobody knew anything about it. As time went on, the local laws changed and eventually they caught us and they shut us down. First thing you should do is Google, if you're planning on doing short-term rental, Google short-term rental ordinances with the city name of where you're looking at going. You also need to look at the zoning laws, become an expert in zoning laws, call the zoning department or look for a real estate agent who has experience with small multifamily and things like that. There are areas that don't allow you to have any kind of multifamily at all if you're looking to build or add units to your existing property. That's why you should become familiar with local building codes. They may restrict the conversion of a single unit into multiple units. They may restrict the number of units you can stick on a plot of land, uh, and they may restrict the, the building of additional units. As I said, when we converted our downstairs space at our beach house to uh, an auxiliary dwelling unit. You know what? If we hadn't done our research and talked to the county, they could come in and said, no, you can't do that. That's not allowed here. So you really want to find out what that is. You want to find out what the lender restrictions are. Clint, when in a moment, he's going to talk about talking to lenders. You need to be upfront with a lender about what you're planning to do because there are some, there are some loan products that are not going to work if you are doing short-term rentals, if you've got any tenants, if it's an investment property, you really need to be upfront and honest with your lender. If you're buying in an area that has a homeowner's association, they may have restrictions on having long-term rentals. They may have restrictions on short-term rentals. You got to talk to them and find out what's allowed. You got to look into what sort of insurance coverage you may need. Once you have tenants, that's not just a straight homeowner's policy. You need to talk to your insurance company about 
what sort of coverages you're going to need for a long-term tenant or short-term tenants. All right. So like I said, you're going to want to research, understand the local zoning laws, building codes, and other restrictions before committing. Uh, and then you may want to engage a local zoning attorney or real estate agent to provide guidance on how you can navigate those restrictions. The other issue they may be dealing with is that now that part of your housing is dependent on other people paying your mortgage. So you need to keep in mind that you may have vacancies. You can't just spend every dollar that you earn from this venture. You need to be putting money away for reserves. Now, some lenders may require this. If you don't take the landlording and managing jobs seriously, you're not going to be a place that people are going to want to live very long. You're going to have a lot of problems with your tenants. You're going to hate it and you're going to abandon it pretty quickly. So you really need to recognize that this is a side hustle. It's probably one of the best paying side hustles you will ever do, but you need to take it seriously. And then finally, not setting tenant boundaries. This is one of the oldest mistakes that new landlords make. You need to have lease in place. You need to have exactly what, hap what happens if they're late on their payment, and you need to stick to it. You can't become friends with your tenant. I know Brandon Turner talked about when he was a landlord for his little small multifamilies, he often didn't tell people that he was the owner. He would tell them that he was the property manager. And if there was any kind of problem, he would say, oh, I need to talk to the owner. And he would get back to them and tell them. And that allowed him to create a little bit of extra distance for himself. So Clint, why don't you walk us through some of the first steps if you decide, all right, hey, all this sounds great. How do I get well, The first question you've got to do is figure out what you can afford. If you're trying to be a property owner, if either you already own a home or you're looking to buy a home, the first step is always to talk to a lender. You've got to talk to a bank. I would suggest talking to multiple banks. Often your local bank is a good place to start. Credit unions is a good place to look. Also mortgage brokers that can look across multiple different platforms to shop around depending on what your needs are. But that's going to be the step number one is asking the question and getting the answer of what can I afford? Now, in terms of buying a property, even a multifamily property, you have a lot of options. You can use a conventional mortgage on anything that's four units or less. But you also have options of using an FHA loan, which is a federally backed loan that allows you to put three and a half percent down. If you've got a military background and you're a veteran, you can use a VA loan, which sometimes is up to zero percent. Even if you find a property, my first property, that I didn't have a lot of money and the property needed renovation. So I used what's called a 203K FHA. That's where it's a federally backed loan. I put down three and a half percent and it allowed me to finance some of the money that I needed for renovation, for new flooring and kitchen and a bathroom and things like that. The stipulations of that are going to depend on your income level and where the property is and how much work the property is. But those are some cheap and easy ways to get into a property that may be up to four units or have a finished basement or accessory dwelling unit or something like that. The number one thing is find out what can I afford and then what's the best product to help me get I just want to add that there is a new, because... House hacking is becoming so popular. There is a new program through, I believe it's through Fannie Mae, and we'll have to we'll have to do some research on this, but they will include, allow you to include the income that you would potentially make on those auxiliary dwelling units or additional units in the in factoring in how much property you can afford. So like I said, talk to a lender. That's the first step. That's a huge deal, especially if you don't make enough money to qualify for the loan. If you can show that part of the property is going to continue to bring in additional revenue, 
that may be enough to get you. It's certainly something to look into. The next thing is, okay, you figured out how much you can afford and how what loan product you can use to go after it. Then you've got to find the right property, right? And there's a lot of things you have to look at. If you already have a job, then obviously it's going to be a certain geographical location. I think most people are probably tied down to a location before they stumble around to learning about house hacking. But if not, then obviously you can get online and do a lot of exploration for a lot of different areas. But the idea is you, if you're looking for the property, don't find the cutest property that you like in the best area of town that you, where you really want to live. Your job is to on your market and ask the question that a real estate investor would ask of what's the highest and best use of every dollar that I have to spend in this market? Where can I spend it that's going to give me the highest return? And it might not be on the street that you like or in the neighborhood that you like, but if it's going to keep you from spending 30% of your income on your housing expense and allow you to take that and invest it other places, in the long run, you will get out of that neighborhood and onto bigger and better things even faster than you would uh, if you lived on the street where you wanted to be. So it's a means to an end, something to keep in mind. What you're getting at is that you need to have, can't just have a homeowner's mindset. You need to have a little bit of a homeowner's plus an investor's mindset. And that's something that's really key. Okay. So what are some of the things that an investor looks at? That's going to be job market in an area. It's going to be population growth. It's going to be potential for appreciation. It's going to be, is are there any zoning changes coming along? Things like that. There's a lot of different things that you're going to look at outside of whether or not you like the backsplash to determine whether or not it's a property that might that might be a good fit for you. And a lot of times that's going to be proximity to local amenity. If it's close to a hospital where you might have nurses or a university that might have grad students or something like that. And then on top of that, if you don't know this is a who, not how situation. You don't have to know how to find the best properties for house hacking. What you need to do is find out who is the person that will know how to find those properties. The best way to do that is to reach out to a local real estate agent. I would also argue that one of the things that's really, people don't talk about enough, it may not be undervalued, but I think people don't fully appreciate the value that can come from it, is networking your local real estate investor groups. Networking and talking to other people that are house hacking or that are doing short-term or long-term rentals or that know the mortgage brokers or that know the realtors. It's a classic scenario where you can feel overwhelmed trying to find the lender product for you. Overwhelmed trying to find the right product, trying to find the right part of town. You don't have to know how to do that. Your job is to figure out who does know how to do that. And networking is one of the best ways to do in terms of finding the local amenity properties or real estate agents, that's something I would highly recommend. Right, so why don't you talk to us about some of the types of properties that you might be telling a real estate agent to look for you that would work as a house? So it's going to be anything that has multiple units. Your idea is what you're trying to go for is where you have a difference in the ratio between sets of fixed overhead on the property and rental. What I mean by that is you have one more, one set of tax, usually one set of utilities or utilities all lumped together, but you have two rental units or one that you can live in and the other that you can rent out or three or an accessory dwelling. And maybe it's not a true duplex, but maybe it's a unit that has a kitchenette and it, somebody may want, not want to live there full time but somebody may want to stay there for a long weekend and use it as a short-term rental. 
So anything where you have multiple livable spaces with a single set of fixed overhead, that's your key. So the buzzwords are duplex, triplex, quadplex, finished basement, granny suite, mother-in-law suite, additional flat, room over the garage, apartment over the garage, attached living space, anything like that. That's what you're looking for. And then even after you have, that's not the end. You have to determine what's the highest and best use of that space. All right. So why don't you run us, walk us through some of running the numbers. Obviously a lender is going to be your first step, but then once you've got an idea of what you can afford, you're going to need to sit down and analyze this like an investor. You're going to need to run the numbers. And there's two situations we're going to talk about here. One, which is running the numbers for a long-term rental and running the numbers for a short-term rental. So why don't you walk us through some of that, Clint? So the best thing to do is you want to just know what the property is going to bring in. You got to start with brass tax, right? Before you look at your principal interest taxes and insurance and utilities, you need to know what that is when you buy the property. But the real question is, what's it going to bring in as a long-term rental? And the best way to determine that is to go to a website called rentometer.com. You can go to rentometer.com. You can plug in your address and your number of bedrooms and bathrooms, and it's going to look at the data of around a three-mile radius around that property based upon the amenities that you put in terms of the number of bedrooms and bathrooms, and it's going to give you a median projection of what a 12-month lease looks like in that area. So it's going to spit out 50th percentile might be, say, 1250 a month, but it's going to show you what the 75th percentile is, the 25th percentile, and you can judge for yourself, okay, I've got stainless steel appliances, I've got granite countertops, I've got laminate, I've got LVP, I've got carpet, whatever it may be. It's going to give you a real good idea of what the projection in that market is. That's the first place you're going to go to get a number of of where you stand. And the question is, what's your mortgage? Is that going to cover your mortgage? How close is it going to be? Even if you're, you only have to pay a couple hundred bucks a month, that's fantastic. But the question is, is that the highest and best use of the property? What I would encourage everyone to do is to compare you can get on Craigslist. In fact, I would encourage you to get on Craigslist and look at houses for rent and switch from the gallery view to the map. The map view will allow you to search your area of town, look around for other properties that are for rent right around there, and click through the pictures and look and see what they're offering and look and see what they're charging. That combined with rentometer is going to give you a real good idea of what you can charge and what are some of the amenities that seem to be popular. On top of that, don't just think that Airbnb or short-term rental properties only work at the beach. That's not the case at all. They work a lot of places you would never expect, close to airports, close to hospitals, close to event venues, travel nursing, anywhere where there's film industry, things like that, uh, anywhere near a military base that is graduating a class of soldiers. Every weekend, Fort Jackson in Columbia, South Carolina is an area that exploded because it's one of the biggest military training bases in the country and they graduate a class of soldiers every weekend. And the houses, the little small ranch houses around that area, they used to rent for $1,000 a month. Now we're going for $800 to $1,000 per weekend because there's a family coming in every weekend for a soldier's graduation. And it's a three to four X what the traditional rents were for that type of property. So don't think that it just has to be a vacation rental in a vacation spot. It's not the case. So one thing I would encourage you to do after you think you found the property or you're researching properties, Go to airdna.co, not .com, it's .co, 
on the left half of the screen, you'll see a button that says invest. So you click on that and there's a feature that you can click on called the rentalizer. The rentalizer allows you just rentometer to put in the address and the number of bedrooms and bathrooms. And it's a data scraping site. It's going to pull the listings from the previous 365 days of any transaction that occurred across Airbnb, VRBO, HomeAway, or Booking.com. And it's going to give you a gross rental projection of what that property would do as a short-term rental. Now, it's going to lump in the cleaning fees. That's usually going to be between 15 to 23% of that gross. It's going to be the money that goes towards cleaning fees and linen costs. But especially if you're house hacking, you're doing the cleaning yourself or you're doing the linens yourself, that's money that can stay in your pocket. Now, it's a very active strategy. Neil said this is a very active side hustle and, it, and you're creating a job for yourself. But it can immediately be a 30, 40% raise to your income if it completely gets away with your housing expense. In fact, a lot of times, and especially in our case, you get paid to live there and someone else is paying your equity down for you. So those are two ways that I encourage you to run the numbers to look after you found the property or you found the people that know how to find the property. You need to look at the numbers and ask yourself the question, what's the highest and best use of the property? And keep in mind that if it's a long-term rental, you're just going to rent it out. But if it's an Airbnb or even a midterm rental on furnishfinder.com and you're looking at travel nurses, if your local hospital utilizes travel nurses, you're going to have to pay to furnish it. But just look at what that cost is going to be. And at the end of the day, figure out how much of my mortgages is going to cover. Is it going to cover all of it? And if it does, what am I going to do with the excess? Your job is not to live off that money. Your job is to take that money and find a way to save it and eventually invest it into truly passive income stream. And that's obviously why you're listening to this podcast. The point is you take that money and you find ways to passively invest it in asset classes that are going to stop you from trading your time for money. One of the best ways to do that is through education, which is why you're listening to this podcast. I commend you for that. But also on top of that, again, local networking, the people in your local group are going to help you learn how to operate a long-term rental or a short-term rental, or they're going to point you in the direction of people that you need to find a property that's going to be the perfect house hack to break free that income that you can invest in a truly passive investment. All right. So that's our high-level overview of house hacking. On this episode, we covered our definition of house hacking. We talked about how house hacking works at a high level. We talked about some of the benefits of house hacking. We gave you some various house hacking ideas. We talked about some of the risks and challenges of house hacking, and we talked about how to get started. So I encourage you, if this is something that you think you could do, make this priority one, short of making sure you're, you're, you've got your budget handled. If you've got your budget, your emergency expenses handled, this is a huge lever that you can pull. Clint and I can't emphasize enough the power of house hacking and what it can do for you if you are willing to go down that lifestyle because it is a lifestyle choice, but it's a huge one. All right. So thanks for listening. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Truly Passive Income Podcast. If you liked this show, if you think it would be useful for someone else, the greatest compliment you could give us would be to share the episode with a friend and leave us an honest review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have any questions, don't hesitate to let us know on Twitter at Truly Passive. And remember, with Truly Passive Income comes freedom of time, place and a freedom to pursue your higher purpose.